In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, which means we have about seven more weeks in this season after Pentecost. Uh, The rest of October, uh, most of November, and then at the end of November, we start the season of Advent. So we're kind of in this home stretch, if you will, of this season, and we're in the home stretch of St. Matthew's Gospel. We're here in chapter 21, and if you remember, Jesus is already in the city of Jerusalem. So uh, we saw his triumphal entry, he's cleansed the temple of the money changers, Uh, he's made it holy, and now he is arguing with the chief priests and the scribes, or rather they're arguing with him, and this is this last week that leads up to his crucifixion uh, and his death. So here we are in this home stretch, and uh, the the primary thing I think that we want to hear, first of all, is uh, the way that Jesus relates to the chief priests and the scribes. He doesn't answer the questions they ask. And this should give us freedom uh, when some people might want to... uh, direct us in a certain way. They ask certain questions that would lead us uh, to answering a certain way. And the Lord, I think, is giving us permission in this to uh, not be led in a certain direction by questions. The Lord answers the questions they should have asked. And he goes right to the heart of the gospel and to our relationship with our Father in the kingdom of heaven. These parables are as clear as they get. And you'll remember last week, he answered that first question about who gives you the authority to do this because Jesus Jesus is not a Levite. He's not part of the Levitical priesthood whose job it would be to cleanse the temple. And they say, who do you think you are? He answers it with this very simple parable. You remember last week, the parable of the sons and the scribes answer it, right? He says, who is the the right son? The one who does what he's supposed to do or the one who says that he's going to do what he's supposed to do? And they correctly answer, well, the one who does it. And they've condemned themselves in that by clearly saying uh, it's about what you do, not about what you say or who you are or the role that you play in society. This uh, parable goes to a similar point that Jesus makes, and that is uh, this parable of the tenants. And so we get this beautiful parable of a master of a vineyard who builds it. He plants this beautiful vineyard. He sets a, a wall around it to protect the vines from intruders, and he puts the tower in the middle. This is the promised land. This is Jerusalem, and this is the place where the Lord has put his people to be holy. He's made them into a holy people. He's given them a place where uh, the fruit that he's hoping to gather is their holiness, is their righteousness. So unlike some of these other agricultural parables that Jesus has asked, where um, uh, the heart maybe is the condition of the soil, or where um, we're identifying with the laborers, uh, here we're identifying with the fruit. It's the holiness of our lives that uh, the Lord is wanting to gather. We're also supposed to relate to the tenants. Uh, He is talking specifically to those who are in leadership positions. So those who are pastors or bishops and priests who are leaders in the church, uh, beware, right? There is a high standard that's being uh, asked of you. But each of us, as we are baptized, become members of the priesthood of all believers. And so all of us have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel, uh, to encourage one another. When we gather here in fellowship, we have a responsibility to one another another to encourage one another in righteousness and the degree to which we cultivate righteousness in one another is the degree to which we are faithful to that job that the Lord has given us to do and so it's clear to see that the master of the vineyard is the father and that the tenants 
uh, are the uh, scribes and the priests, those who had the religious authority. And then those servants that the master sends are the prophets. This is uh, very typically how the fathers interpret this parable. And of course, how are the prophets treated when they come and tell the people, live righteous lives. They're beaten, they're stoned, they're killed. Isaiah himself, who we hear from this morning, uh, was murdered by the people because they would not listen to uh, his call to righteousness. And then, of course, finally he sends his son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this way the parable becomes prophetic because he says in the parable that the son they will take out of the vineyard and they will kill him outside. And, of course, that's exactly what happens to our Lord and Savior. They take him outside of the city and they have him killed by outsiders. So he's killed outside by outsiders uh, trying to distance themselves uh, from their call for his blood. And so Jesus is saying that we are called to be righteous, to cultivate righteousness in our lives, and to cultivate the righteousness in the others. And it's also prophetic in the sense that he asks them, what will the master do to these tenants uh, who are uh, murderers and who are thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests say they will be uh, held accountable, right? They will have the consequences of their action. And so this is also prophetic for those who do not accept Christ. Uh, as the Son of God. Isaiah's parable is, is very similar, isn't it? Uh, we see this parable of uh, the promised land, of the holy ones of Israel being planted in the promised land, and that the Lord's desire is to uh, raise up these cultivated, these sweet table grapes, and instead uh, he gets wild grapes. Wild grapes are small, and they're sour, and they're bitter, Right? And this is a call for us to examine our own lives. Are we small, right? A small person uh, isn't small in stature. A small person is one who's always the victim. Uh, they're always uh, you know, on the defensive. Nothing's ever going their way. Poor me, why me, uh, right? They become very territorial over their things. I've got to keep my stuff and I've got to have my stuff. They get very small and they're always uh, crowding in and holding on to, to what they've got rather than being magnanimous and generous uh, with their spirit and with their time. We're also uh, sour and bitter when we respond to others in the world in this sour and bitter way when we're um, always at odds and we're always kind of fussing and whining and nothing's really going our way. Uh, this is us being wild. We're not allowing ourselves to be disciplined. I've told many times the story about Aaron and I living in Manteca, California, in the Central Valley, and about the, the grapes that were growing on the side of our house there. And uh, at first, I didn't even realize they were grapes. I thought that this was uh, just some detritus that was there underneath the vines. And as I dug around in these vines, and it was so bushy and overgrown, I realized, oh, these are grapes. And I tried a few, and indeed, they were small and sour and bitter. And I talked to a farmer who was in our parish, John Boggs, who could make anything grow. He had the most beautiful garden in the world. I said, John, I think these are, are grapes, but they're wild. And he said, well, they're not supposed to be. And I said, is there anything we can do? Should we fertilize it? Should we water it more? He said, you don't have to do anything except prune it. And so he said, if you just, if you cut away uh, the, the dead leaves and, and the extra vines, it will grow. 
And so he said, I'll help you with it if you want to do it. And so we got out there and we cut away all the vines and we cut away all the leaves until there was just one row of leaves on the very top of the vine. It was barely anything very uh, growing on the top of that vine and the rest of it was just laid bare. And I thought, oh my goodness, we've done a hack job on this vine. You know, there's no way it's going to grow. That summer we got more grapes. I mean, you could hold them like this. They were like the storybook pictures of uh, Caleb and Joshua going to the promised land with that massive bunch of grapes grapes you know that they would hold up there were these huge we had more grapes than we could ever possibly eat uh, because we had pruned them and this is what the lord wants to do with us he wants to prune us yay isn't that wonderful the lord wants to prune us he wants to cut away all that extra stuff in our lives. He wants to cut away all of that extra time that we spend doing things other than what He's called us to do, looking at things that He doesn't want us to look at, talking to people He doesn't want us to talk to, all that extra stuff that shades us and keeps the Holy Spirit and the voice of God from coming into our lives. We invite all that other stuff into our lives and the Holy Spirit uh, isn't allowed in and the voice of God isn't allowed in and we're covered up by all of this media and all these talking voices and all these other things other than reading the scriptures and listening to the voice of God and searching out role models for a virtuous Christian life. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't get to come in and we become really small and sour and bitter. And Isaiah says that the answer to that is that the Lord uh, allows the field to go fallow. And indeed, this is what finally happens. About 300 years after Isaiah, he allows the walls to be broken down. He allows the the tower to be knocked over and the fields to go fallow. And this is what happens uh, to the people when they go to Babylon. The fields are fallow and they have to come back and they have to participate now with the Lord in this pruning and this clearing so that they can become uh, this righteousness of God. They be- can become these sweet, these sweet grapes, right? These sweet grapes that are not sweet because we're nice and we're always smiling, but we're great and sweet because we're full of the flavor of the Holy Spirit. We're full of, of the will of God. So how do we do that? How do we participate and come into the will of God? Uh, St. Paul, uh, here in his letter uh, to the Philippians, gives us two basic approaches. Two basic approaches. The first one is that we have to press on and hold fast. So what he's saying here is stay focused, right? We've got to know what our goal is. We're never going to be successful if we're not focused on our goal. Our goal is the kingdom of heaven. Our goal is a relationship with Christ. Our goal is to be one with him, to be obedient to him, to be in relationship, closeness with him and his kingdom. That has to be our goal, that we want to want to be with our Savior. We want to be with our Father. We want to listen to him. We want to be with him. Uh, We want to live with him and dwell with him the kingdom that has to be our focus uh, that we press on for we have to have uh, that goal and we know this from so many walks of life Uh, we know this from uh, sports right those uh, athletes that spend the most time uh, that have the clearest focus of what they're supposed to do and that dedicate this time and their focus are successful it's not so much about talent is it it's about the focus that we have and the desire this driving Uh, force. I've been so impressed by hearing, I've been watching the NBA finals and there's so many guys that you look at and you think, this guy looks like the guy next door. 
You know, he doesn't look like a regular basketball player. And then you hear about the stories and the hours and the hours that they put in and all the sacrifices that they made in their lives to get there. This is what we love about the Olympics, right? This is what we miss so much about the Olympics this summer, is hearing about the sacrifices that these athletes make, right? So that's what you have to have, that goal uh, to press on and to hold fast. And then he says we have to imitate. And this is something that Americans on the surface are not really so much into, right? We hear imitators, we hear imitation, we hear posers, right? Nobody wants to be a poser. Well, St. Paul is not saying be a poser, right? A poser is somebody who just looks like they're doing what they're supposed to do. They just want to look cool, right? They just want to act cool. They don't want to actually be uh, that person who is truly different, right? It's about putting on appearances. We don't want to be that kind of a person. But we do have to imitate righteousness. This is why we have all these saints on our walls, right? They're men and women, they're young and old, they're poor and rich, uh, they're educated, they're uneducated. They should be able to speak to each of us in their own unique way. And what they all have in common is that all of their lives look like Christ. All of their lives follow Him. And when we imitate those around us that are following the Lord, we pick up those habits that they have, we too become imitators of Christ. Our Sunday school teachers and our grandparents and our next door neighbor that that is reading the scripture and is leading this honest, righteous, upright life, right? We know these people and we cultivate relationships with them and we say, I want to be like them, right? If you want to be rich, you've got to hang out with rich people and figure out how are you doing what you're doing. If you want to be uh, successful in your marriage, you want to find some 80-year-old couple right, that's been married for forever and say, how did you do that? What's your success? We've got to surround ourselves with people that are doing what we want to do. And so if we want to walk in this Christian life, we have to imitate uh, those who have come before us and walk as they've walked. Isn't it weird that Jesus calls himself a stone? A cornerstone? There's a couple of important things here. The first one is he warns us about the cornerstone. And St. John Chrysostom says uh, there's two ways that the stone is dangerous. The stone is dangerous when we fall on it. And if you've ever fallen and hit your head on a stone, at first you think, dumb rock? Right? But then you realize it's not the rock's fault. I like rocks. Rocks are good. We need them to build walls and houses, right? It's my fault for falling on the dumb thing, right? So we've got to be careful that we don't fall on the rock. And that's who Jesus is. He is unyielding, He will not move. And if we fall on Him, that is, if we sin, if we're not careful about what we do, we will fall on His righteousness. And His righteousness is solid, it will not yield. It will not say, well, that's okay, don't worry about it. His righteousness is firm. The other way St. John Chrysostom says that the cornerstone is dangerous to us is if it falls on us. And if you've ever been in the wilderness and you've seen these signs that say, beware of falling rocks, right? That's the side of the street you don't want to hang out on, right? You don't want to have a picnic on the place where it says, beware of falling rocks. And this is what people do. They hang out with dangerous people. They hang out in dangerous places. They mill around with people who are not doing what they're supposed to do. They keep bad company. And then they wonder, why am I always in trouble? Beware of falling rocks. Because the righteousness of God, His ways are always there and are always secure. And they can be dangerous to us. There will be consequences to our actions. Finally, the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid in the building. 
The cornerstone is put at the corner. It's the very first one the builder lays. And then all the other stones are stacked on top of it. And the walls are lined up. And the cornerstone keeps the walls straight. So if we're going to build our lives, we want to build it on Christ the cornerstone. That is, everything that we decide that we're going to do, everything that we decide that we're going to be, everything that we're going to add to our lives had better rest on Christ. It had better depend on Him. If it's going to depend on the economy or on an employer or on a talent that we have, it's going to fall. But if everything we do depends on Christ, it will remain firm. The cornerstone then is what we line the wall up with. So when we're measuring the wall out, we justify or we true the wall according to the cornerstone. So we're looking at our lives and we're thinking, am I going the right direction here? We want to true it. We want to justify it with the cornerstone. And the two walls that are the main walls of the church that the cornerstone rests on are justice and mercy. Sometimes we ask for mercy. Oh Lord, don't let me... Uh, have the consequences of my sin. We can have that if we recognize His justice. And sometimes we cry out for justice, O Lord, let them get what they deserve, but we don't have mercy. And so we have to have mercy and justice joined together in our lives as we cry out for righteousness in ourselves and in the lives of others. May we be built upon the cornerstone. May we lay our lives firmly upon Christ and his truth. May we live lives that are righteous and holy. May we bear good fruit that is sweet and is good for those that depend on us, for those that love us, and for those that the Lord has given us to serve and cultivate in righteousness this day and forevermore. Amen.